0: If you were not with us last week, our text for the message was Habakkuk chapter 1. And because I know there were some that were not with us, that that are here with us this evening, that were not with us last week, I do want to back up and just reestablish the context of this passage because it is so critical to understanding uh, the text of Habakkuk chapter 2. The book of Habakkuk is a conversation between God and Habakkuk. This conversation begins as Habakkuk looks around at his world, at Judah, the nation that he was living in at the time, and he sees corruption, injustice, and oppression that is reigning in the nation. And he wonders aloud to God at the beginning of Habakkuk chapter 1 why God is allowing this injustice to go on. And how long is God going to allow it to go on before He decides to do something about it? In verse 5 of Habakkuk chapter 1, the Lord begins to respond to these questions that Habakkuk raises. And the Lord tells Habakkuk that he is going to do something about the injustice that Habakkuk sees. But what he is going to do about that injustice is going to confound Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not going to believe it when he hears it. He is not going to understand it when he hears it from the word of the Lord. And what the Lord goes on to tell Habakkuk is that He is raising up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, to to take captive the people of God and will take possession of the land of God's people. Now this was not how Habakkuk thought God would or should deal with the injustice in the land, yet it was the plan of God. And so this response by the Lord God to Habakkuk prompts Habakkuk to ask even more questions now that he has been told the plan of the Lord for dealing with this corruption. And in, the, in verses 12 uh, through chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk 1.12-2.1, 1, Habakkuk asks uh, more questions to the Lord. And the questions are of really two natures. First, how can God keep His promises to the nation of Israel and go on with this plan? And second, how can God justify using a more wicked nation to destroy a seemingly less wicked nation? Now, the second question, of course, had a faulty premise because that is to assume that the nation of Judah was less wicked than the nation of Babylon. But as we'll see from chapter 2, the same sins that Babylon was uh, guilty of, Judah themselves were also guilty of. So uh, the premise of the second question was faulty. And of course, God, God knew that He had made those promises to Israel. And He was fully intent on on getting the nation of Israel back into the land. He knew what was going to happen after the Babylonians captured the people, that the Persians were going to take over, and the Persians had a different strategy for dealing with their prisoners of war and would send the people back. God knew all that. Uh, He he knew how He was going to keep His promises to His people. But in chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, the Lord begins to respond to Habakkuk. The emphasis of last week was that Faithfulness does not necessarily mean that we don't ask questions of God. The presence of faith in our lives does not necessarily mean there's an absence of questions and concerns and doubts about how the Lord is acting in our world. It simply means that uh, that though we may internally question what the Lord is doing, our faith trumps our fears. Our trust in God outweighs our questions about what God is doing. So again, in our text, the Lord responds to Habakkuk. And I want us to read these verses. And as we read, we'll begin reading in verse number 3, or verse number 4 rather. And I want you to notice the usage of the word woe in this chapter. There are five times in which the word woe is found. And it is is meant to trigger our mind to a new warning to the Babylonian people. Beginning in verse number 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, and of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people, and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth the city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the, Lord of the Lord of hosts that the people should labor in the very fire, and the, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, and that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for violence of the land of the city, and all that dwell therein. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies, that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him." One of the things that modern Western Christianity has a difficulty with are the portions of Scripture that reveal the way in which God deals with His enemies. Especially those that are written from the perspective of one of the saints of God that is writing to God, imploring Him to destroy His enemy, and then after God destroys His enemy, rejoicing that God has in fact destroyed that enemy. There are a group of psalms, you may be familiar with them, called the Imprecatory Psalms. And these psalms are dedicated to just that. They're psalms written by God's chosen servant to God, imploring Him to do specifically that, to destroy the enemies of God's people and the enemies of God, and rejoicing when God does so. Psalms 5.5 tells us, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.10 tells us, Destroy thou them, O God. Psalm 79 verse 6 says, Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee. And I've seen a lot of Jesus loves you, and a lot of Christ life uh, slogans found on the back of people's cars and the front of people's shirts. I don't think I've ever seen those verses uh, on the back of someone's, someone's, uh, someone's car. Now it is, reasy, it is easy for us as sophisticated Bible students to reconcile the wrath of God and the goodness of God. We know that these two things are certainly reconcilable. In fact, we can't understand the gospel apart from both the wrath and the goodness of God. If God is not a wrathful uh, God that will pour out His judgment on His enemies, then the cross is nothing more than unnecessary torture of the Son of God. So we certainly can reconcile these things. But even even still, when we come to the New Testament and we read passages like the one found in Matthew where Jesus says to His disciples, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Or the one in Romans 12 where Paul says, If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For most of us, these commands are very difficult, very difficult to obey. But we at least recognize that we should obey them. That this is part of the the proper Christian attitude and conduct in this church, church age. And yet, even as we approach the Bible from our New Testament lens, there is still room for a desire for justice, even in this church age. In fact, even in Romans chapter 12, if you'd like to study it on your own, you can, the context for the killing killing your enemies with kindness words from Paul is that we do not kill our enemies or we do not fight our enemies because God will do that for us. It is, a very, it is in that very passage that Paul quotes the Scriptures and says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So the reason we do not fight back is because we trust that God will take care of it for us. So the wrath of God is not suspended in this age. Uh, it is, in fact, storing up for the workers of iniquity. And in fact, for those that do not put their faith in Jesus Christ, there is coming a day where the wrath of God will be poured out in full upon them. And it's a fitting end for them. Because what would we expect for those that reject the Son of God? What what kind of end would we expect for those that oppress others? What kind of end would we expect for those that use their power to take advantage of of others. So I would suggest to you that, that nothing short of the full wrath of God is what they deserve. And it is in fact what they, what they will get if they, they do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But what I would like to say to you is that God will receive glory in their condemnation. We really don't like to think about these things. But just as God receives glory from our justification, He will receive glory from the wrath poured out upon the enemies of God. And I understand. I I didn't get an amen with that. I understand that. To our Western sensibilities, that is something that makes us cringe. But as we read Habakkuk chapter 2, what we really are reading is a taunt. It is a taunt to the enemies of God's people. In fact, this taunt is coming from God Himself. He is warning and he is taunting the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people that if they do not change their course of action, they will face destruction. So I want us to consider these woes that are given. And by the way, the woes that are given here in chapter 2 are, I would imagine from the prophet of Habakkuk, exactly what he was looking for. They are, as we might call them, welcomed woes. He is excited. He is elated to hear these woes Poured out upon, or poured out to the nation of Babylon, because as a Jew watching the Babylonian Empire come in and ransack his people, he would want nothing more, or nothing less, than the wrath of God poured out upon the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. So, as we consider these woes, I want us to practically consider them from two aspects. One, first, do we not see the very sins of Babylon manifested in our own nation? And we very oftentimes sing the song "God Bless America," but there is no room for the blessing of God in America as long as the sins of Babylon are present in our own nation. And secondly, secondly, are these sins present in our own lives? And surely we would be here and say no. I mean, surely we're not following after the pattern of Babylon. But I think as we look at the woes, the specifics of the woes given to Babylon, we may find hints of the same sins present in our own life. And so may the Lord apply the woes to our own hearts where it is needed. I want you to see the first woe in verse number verses six to eight. This first woe is the woe to extreme usury. You'll notice there in the middle of verse six woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. And the first woe is to them which increase in substance at the expense of others. The imagery given here is of a money lender who, uh, that charges an, ex- an absurd, exorbitant interest on the money that is lent out. Sort of like a modern day uh, payday, uh, payday lender, payday loan that you might get with exorbitant interest rates, oppressive interest rates. Babylon's method to build their empire was extremely oppressive. We don't have time to go there tonight, but if you'd like to, mark down 2 Kings 24 where you can go read... Babylon going into Judah, and they in fact went into Judah twice and ransacked Judah and Jerusalem twice. And you find the details of that in 2 Kings 24. We won't consider those details in full. But suffice to say, they ransacked, they pillaged the nation of Judah. They left nothing good in the land of Judah. They made it near impossible for Judah to rebuild from the ruins. They took all that was good. They took every man that was able to go to war and they took him to cap- captivity to Babylon. They took everything they laid their eyes on that they wanted. The gold, the silver, the cattle, the goods, whatever they wanted, they took. And you'll notice there at the end of verse 6, the phrase, the odd phrase, uh, and, uh, that, that ladeth himself, "...and ladeth himself with thick clay." That's an unusual phrase. And what the Lord is saying there is that the wealth that they accumulated as a result of this plundering was, was like pouring on themselves thick mud, thick clay. Now it's interesting to note as, uh, as we go through these woes, especially this first woe, that the sin that Babylon is guilty of, the plundering of others, the, the, the exploitation of others, uh, for the gain of self is the precise sin that the kings of Judah were guilty of. The king of Judah had employed slave labor for the building of his own palace. Uh, and so these woes very much apply to, uh, to the land of Judah and to the, kings of Ju- the king of Judah uh, just as it applied to Babylon. And history does in fact tell us that people seemingly never learn. One empire topples another empire and that empire resorts to the same tactics that the first empire used that ultimately led to its demise. And the woe here, again, is to those that exploit others for personal gain. And I don't know if anybody here needs to hear this, but stealing is not okay. And of course, stealing in our modern-day form is not usually, uh, God forbid, hopefully it does not take form of you walking out of the grocery store with something you did not purchase. Uh, but stealing in the modern form is a lot more sophisticated than that. Yeah, yeah. Stealing time from the employee, employer. Uh, going back on a promise that you made to a customer. These are all the more sophisticated ways of stealing. But at, the, but at the bottom line, it is the same thing. It is exploiting others for the gain of self. And what God says is, be careful. You exploit others for the gain of others. You, say, you might say, well... You don't know them. They exploited me. Well, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't matter if they deserved it. It doesn't matter if they did it to you. Uh, Exploitation of others for the gain of self. uh, God has a very serious woe to them. Now look at verse number 7. And the Lord's taunt to the nation of Babylon, "...shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them?" What the Lord is saying here is that there was coming a day when the nations that that were oppressed by Babylon would turn around and oppress Babylon. They would be like a dog that would have had enough and would finally bite the oppressive owner. Uh, The word vex has the idea of shaking violently, like you might with a piggy bank to get all of the coins out. And one of these days, the nations that were oppressed by the Babylonian Empire were going to turn around and oppress the Babylonian Empire and get every last coin Uh, that was in their piggy bank, so to speak. And if you and I are fixed on accumulating resources in this world, we must make sure to do it fairly. Do not do it at the expense of others. Because when you do it at the expense of others, you may gain in the short term, but you then turn God against you. And I promise you, if you have God against you, you will not gain in the long term. So the first woe is to selfish exploitation. The second woe is found in verses 9 to 11. And this is a woe to false security. Look at verse 9. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Now at first glance, the covetousness with which they are accused of having does not seem to be all that evil. They want to set up their nest like eagles so that no higher power can come and destroy them. That doesn't seem all too bad. But the idea that is wicked here, that God is really warning against, is the idea of self reliancy of self-sufficiency. The imagery here is, of course, of an eagle who builds its nest up on high so that no predators can reach them, can, can kill them, can, uh, can destroy them. Of course, an eagle is an apex predator. It is the top of the food chain. It sits up, sits up high with its good eyesight and it looks down on the prey and it finds a victim that it can have for lunch and it swoops down and it kills it and then it returns back up to its nest to enjoy its meal. And this is exactly what the Babylonians wanted to become. They wanted to be immune from the attacks of their enemies. Uh, and in fact, they had built a city that was pretty much impregnable uh, by their enemies. Uh, a contemporary historian said of the Walls, the inner walls of the city of Babylon said that they were 85 feet wide. They were 335 feet high with 250 towers on top. And, they were thir- and the walls were 35 feet deep to not allow tunneling. Now I don't know if that's true. That sounds like an exaggeration. But regardless of whether it's true or not, whether the, uh, the details are exactly true, the walls were pretty impressive. They were pretty difficult for an enemy uh, to get to get through. They had built their nest on high. They had made themselves immune from the attacks of their enemies. But we turn to Obadiah, where the Lord speaks to the Edomites in Obadiah. And this is what the Lord says to the Edomites in condemnation of, of their sin. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. And the Lord's message is to Babylon is the same. That you can build your nest up on high, but there is one that is higher than you. And that is God Himself. <clears throat> and the Lord's message to Babylon applies uh, to, you, to you and I as well. Because in our Western world, there are really two competing Ideas when it comes to self-determination. There is the very individualistic philosophy, uh, where the highest pursuits in life amount to uh, independence, to, to gaining independence from external influences and ex- external uh, uh, people outside of our ourselves. And then there is the exact opposite philosophy, which ascribes really divine power to the government. It says that the government should choose who gets what and how resources are uh, distributed and spread spread about. And I think there are very few, if any, that are in here tonight that ascribe to the latter philosophy, uh, the philosophy of communism, of socialism. But I think there is much greater susceptibility in here of falling victim to the the desire for self-reliance, for uh, self-sufficiency, uh, pursuing a sufficiency from from everyone in the world, including God Himself. And we may not, we may not uh, willingly recognize that. We may not even consciously recognize that. But we must be careful in our pursuit of self-reliance and self-sufficiency to not lose our dependency upon God Himself. So we can prepare for the day of battle, but we must not forget that God is our refuge and our shield. And we can plant gardens and raise chickens, but we must not forget that God provides our daily food. And we can set aside for retirement, but we must not forget that God is the one that is taking care of our future. And the moment that we take our eyes off of God for our provision and our protection, we begin to fall into the same sins that the nation of Babylon fell into and and the the sins that, that were the cause of this second woe. This false sense of security is something that we have to watch out for. I want you to notice the third woe in verses 12 to fourteen, And this is a woe to ruthless iniquity. Ruthless iniquity. Verse 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. And I think it goes without saying almost that the empire building that Babylon did was at the, uh, was at the cost of the blood of their victims. They were a ruthless uh, people. They were an oppressive people. They were a bloody... And people and the woes collectively, up to this point, really give us a, a good picture of the brutality of the Babylonian empire. They took what they wanted, they plundered, they raped, they killed, and they left. They destroyed all that was in their wake, and they shed much blood, much blood in the process of doing so and God says that he does not turn a blind eye to ruthless oppression. He will not let that go. Unjudged, and he will not let that injustice go uh, without notice. And I think we've got to be careful even today, <clears throat> because God will not let the ruthless oppression in our own lives go either. Whether it is in our empire building, whether it is in our in our business, or whether it is in our family. And if your job has you has people speaking, or if your job has people uh, under you. Uh, under your responsibility and your your leadership, you shouldn't speak to those people in such a way that you wouldn't speak to those that are over you. Dad, you better be careful when you come home and you, you spout off that frustration to your kids. Uh, God's watching. Uh, Mom, be careful with how you speak to your kids in frustration. God is watching how we treat those that are under us. And in fact, really... We all have somebody under us, or at least something under us. Uh, You can watch a kid how they treat insects to know if they have a little bit of that inclination to ruthlessness. Uh, How an older sibling treats a younger sibling. And uh, Parker and Megan will be silent right there, won't we? (laughs) But God is watching. God is watching. And He does not turn an eye to uh, ruthlessness to those that we treat ruthlessly. Have some compassion. Have some mercy on those that are under you. I mean, after all, we do want the Lord helping us in our work. We want Him helping us in how we build our businesses, how we build our families. And except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And one of the fastest ways you can get the Lord to stop building your work is by ruthlessly oppressing those that are under you. We can lose the the mighty hand of God that is working for us when we oppress those that are under us. Now in verse number 13, the Lord says something interesting here. He says, Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. And the Lord is saying there that all of their labor, all of their toiling in the building of their empire was one day going to go up in smoke. And when you When you connect verse 13 with verse 14, what we really get is a glimpse of a very glorious future. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, "...for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." And the Lord takes a quick time out in this message of doom and gloom to tell Habakkuk that there is coming a day when the Babylonian Empire will no longer exist, and that the king of kings will rule over this earth with peace and righteousness." And there will be no corruption. There will be no oppression. There will be no injustice. Uh, There will be no violence. There will be no ruthlessness because the King of kings, the, the King of righteousness, the King of peace rules forever and ever over this earth. And in fact, in verse 14, he says that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's not going to be a corner on this earth that does not know the glory of God, that does not see the glory of God. And that is going to be because the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth. And that king, of course, is not ruthless at all. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is loving. And what a wonderful day it's going to be when He reigns and rules on this earth. The fourth woe that we see here in this passage, beginning at verse 15 to verse 17, is the woe to drunken immorality. Verse uh, verse 15, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Now back in verse number 5, you notice what the Lord says about the Babylonians first. He says, Yea also, because he transgresseth by wine. The first thing that the Lord notes, well verse 4, He notes their pride, uh, the uplifted soul that was within them. But in this paragraph, the first thing that God notes of the Babylonians is their drunkenness, is their, uh, is, their, uh, is their transgressions by wine. Their bondage to alcohol was a driving force to their obsession for more power. That's what verse 5 tells us. Because they were consumed with alcohol, they were also consumed with a lust for more power, and a lust for more, uh, a more, uh, more avenues for oppression. And then in verse number fifteen, what the Lord tells us here is that their drunkenness was the driving force behind their sexual sins. You know, alcohol will cause people to do things that they would not normally do. It breaks down barriers, uh, breaks down barriers, and allows or causes people to do things that they would not do. You think about Noah. After he got off the ark, he built himself a vineyard and he got drunk. And it was in that drunkenness that the sin of homosexuality was committed. We think about Lot. Uh, Lot uh, uh, committed the sin of incest only after he had gotten drunk. And so, so uh, uh, alcohol will cause you to do things that you would not have done otherwise. And I hope that this is not a warning that anyone here needs. But while we're here, we might as well uh, park here and just say something briefly. That... If you are here and you are considering playing around with alcohol beverage, you are a fool. In fact, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that wine is a mock or strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You are a fool if you're playing around with alcoholic beverage. You know, in recent days, in the last couple of weeks, I don't know if you've noticed in the news, but there is a boycott of one of the more popular brands of beer, which I will not name here because of their partnership with a transgender activist. I don't know, you've probably seen that. And as I followed the last few days, as I guess the sales has gone down for that particular brand, I, I'm amazed at the typical conservative uh, outrage, because they're all outraged about the partnership with the transgender activists. And I guess, I guess there's a little bit of... Uh, uh, good news with that, at least they're outraged about something that's wicked. But why are we not outraged at the devastation of alcohol? Why? Why have we left that fact alone? I mean, every 45 minutes someone in America dies as a result of a drunk driver. Why are we not talking about that? Let us set aside the transgender activists and let's talk about the alcoholic industry. Because that's where the devastation comes from. And whether it is the... Uh, whether it is the immense societal effects, whether it is the bodily harm that alcohol uh, has, or whether it is the disaster that it causes in the family. Alcohol is something that you and I should avoid at all costs. I always uh, chuckle when I hear a Christian try to make a biblical case for alcohol. That is foolish. It is foolish and it is a weak case at best. At best. Stay away from alcohol. I want you to notice the final woe that is given in this passage to the Babylonians, and that is the woe to absurd idolatry. Now, in all the other woes that have come before this, the order is like this. You have the woe, and then you have the taunt. But in this last woe, you have a reverse of the order. In verse 18, you have the taunt, and in verse, in verse 19, you have The woe. And if you'll look at verse number 19, he says, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! To the dumb stone, Arise! It shall teach. Now the absurdity of idolatry is obvious. I mean, you read verse 19 and you can see the absurdity. Someone that says to a piece of wood, Awake! And someone that says to a stone, Arise and teach me something, is a true fool. I mean, that is absurd. It's obviously... Absurd, And the Lord taunts these idolaters by asking them, what have they profited from this idolatry? What good has their gods done uh, for them? Did their idols deliver them from evil? Did their idols teach them how to live? Did their idols assure them and give them hope? Their idols didn't do any of that. And the reason is in verse number 19, "...behold it is laid over with gold and silver, so it looks beautiful I guess." And there is no breath at all in the midst of it. It is a dead object. It is absurd. It is idiotic. It is absurd at its face value. But let me me remind you that idolatry does not always take the form of a wood or stone object. Again, the sins of the 21st century are far more sophisticated, at least Western civilization are far more sophisticated than that. Yet they are the same base sin that we commit in our Western world that they committed uh, in the Babylonian Empire. And the gods that we might have before us are not idols of wood and stone, but they may rival the trust and the devotion that we are obligated to give to God. So when we place our trust in anything besides God, we have a God before Him. And when we place our worship and our adoration that belongs to God and God alone in something that is not God, we have a God before Him. And when we serve something else other than God, we have a God before Him. Those gods can be ourselves, they can be others, they can be some inanimate object like money. It can be really anything you want. And in fact, if you choose to reject God, you will fill that void for God with anything that you can. And regardless of the form of idolatry, all idolatry, whether it is our Modern forms of sophisticated idolatry, or whether it is the forms that the Babylonian Empire were guilty of, it is all the same, and it is all absurd. Now I want to close with this in verse number twenty, a wonderful closing that the Lord gives to Habakkuk. He says, "The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. And what Habakkuk or what the Lord is saying to Habakkuk here is that God is in control, And when Habakkuk looks around at the world around him, and he looks at the king of Judah, God is in control, and God has a plan. And when he hears the plan of God to deal with the king of Judah, that the nation of Babylon is coming, know that God is in control, and that God has a plan. And when we look at the world today, we should look at it with the same lens that God is giving Habakkuk to look at it as well. The Lord is in His holy temple. You can look at this world and you can see the chaos. Or you can look to the heavens and see the Lord in His holy temple. And if you look at that last phrase, it says, let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now the word silence there is an interesting one. It's very similar to, the, uh, to what we find in the book of Numbers chapter 13, when the twelve spies had returned, and they brought their report to the children of Israel, Numbers 13 tells us about Caleb, one of the two good spies. It says he stilled the people before Moses. He calmed their spirits, so to speak. It's the same idea found in Psalms 46. Be still and know that I am God. This is the idea. God is in control. And when we look at the chaos in our world, know that God is in control. And when we look at our own circumstances and sometimes the chaos that is in them, know that God is in control. And when we look at the world around us and we see a world that is defiant against Him, that is ruthless in its oppression of the downtrodden, that is filled with all manner of evil, and in fact some evil that you can't even imagine, it's so depraved and so wicked, you can rest in this. God is in control. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Let's pray.